It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend. Please do that. I love when people come up to me on the streets and say, I love your podcast. I I can't believe you didn't ask this question or I appreciate that you did ask this question. So please do share this podcast and tell people about it. Word of mouth is the best way, I think, to get people subscribed to good conversations. Today we have a conversation with the president of the Heritage Foundation. Kevin Roberts is someone who I've respected for a long time. He used to be at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He came to D.C. uh, and has been at Heritage. We've had conversations with him before I have, and I appreciate his uh, approach to the job of being at the center of policy debates in Washington and being a significant uh, political actor in terms of the impact that he can have. We speak about a number of different things related to this most recent speaker fight, what he was trying to achieve from the heritage perspective, what he believes the 20 or so holdouts achieved in terms of negotiating uh, with the new leadership and what that will do to the Congress and particularly what will happen if all of this descends into chaos. Kevin Roberts, president of the Heritage Foundation, coming up next. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Kevin Roberts, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's always a pleasure to join you. Thanks for having me. So I want to talk to you about a number of different things. But first off, I think we have to start with, obviously, this significant... Uh, speaker battle that just took place. And as much as there was, you know, commentary from the CNNs and MSNBCs that didn't really get into what was going on there and falsely depicted a lot of the different things that were being asked for, you know, Heritage and many other, you know, entities on the right, you know, were pushing for the Congress to behave in a different way. And something that was, you know, really being carried as a message uh, by, you know, my friend, your friend, Chip Roy, is, uh, uh, in, in terms of the argument he was trying to advance. But not everybody understands what goes into that, you know, what the rules committee is, what the steering committee is, why it even matters, what the makeup of these different uh, functions within the Congress, uh, you know, are when it comes to the different people who are able to sit on those committees. So explain to me, if you could, kind of the hierarchy of what, you felt was the most important things that you could get out of this moment, what you got and how you feel about it. Well, you're so right. I won't belabor the point about the commentary just being unsatisfying and incomplete, but (laughs) I, I, I try to be a cheerful warrior and add and multiply and not contribute to the bad rhetoric. So I'll just leave that there and hope that our friends and not friends in the media learn their lesson. I make mistakes too. So that's, they just need to recognize their commentary, including commentary from the right, was a terrible mistake. And I think the reason is that 
some of this is arcane. I mean, to your to your point, Ben, I love the way you frame it in terms of hierarchy. The first and most important is the rules committee. And, and I know that normal Americans, when they hear that phrase, have their eyes glaze over. That's good. Your eyes should continue to glaze over when you hear the, the, <laughs> the phrase rules committee. Mine almost do. But the point is, it's crucial for running the House, whether the Democrats are in control or the, or the Republicans are. I, I have used the, the metaphor last week of it being like your weekly family meeting. Our kids are a little bit older than yours, but when yours get a little bit older, you'll have a family meeting and you'll probably find that Sunday night is the best time to do that. It's what we do every week without fail. The Rules Committee meets every Sunday evening and sets the agenda for the House, the calendar for the House. This is really important because with 435 members, that's a really big family that, as we know, does not get along. <laughs> so for the first time to, to cut to the chase here, Ben. In a long time, the Rules Committee will have three truly conservative members. No disrespect to the other Republicans on the committee, but even they would say that they're more moderate than whomever the three conservatives coming on will be. And if those members are people like our friend Chip Roy, you have to account for my bias. He's one of my closest friends. I know that he's very thoughtful in addition to being a conservative. And in addition to being a very fair guy, what's going to happen is that the legislation that comes up, is going to be more reflective of the conservative movement outside Washington, D.C. That, along with a couple of other things, are really important. The couple of other things are having a church committee headed by Thomas Massey. It's really important, and I, I, I love this because this would include our li more libertarian friends who are concerned about just the, the, the usage of, of government to erode our civil liberties. Representative Massey is going to get to the heart of that, and, and it needs to be something that's nonpartisan. This is something that shouldn't be a Democrat or Republican witch hunt. It really should be about self-governance, and he's going to do it. And then the third thing, it's sort of, and I shouldn't do this, glossing over the importance of, of Jim Jordan being an oversight or, or perhaps being involved in that committee against the weaponization of, of government, is spending. And I can tell you for people like Congressman Roy and so many of the conservatives, that's really it. And it was the, the omnibus bill during the lame duck session that was the straw that broke the camel's back. That's when we, these, these guys mm -hmm. and gals decided this is going to be the hill that they charge. I am proud uh, of Heritage and all of my colleagues there for charging that hill with them. They were in the lead as they needed to be as members, but we were very happy to be providing them the figurative intellectual ammunition, meaning we can get much better policies with these changes. So this is the thing that I think is is the real critical test. Do you believe that these rules changes, that all of these different agreements that have been cut, which we still don't really have the full roster of them publicly known, but we, we've all, I'm sure you and I have heard a lot of different things. Do you believe that this will lead to chaos? Because that's the assumption on the part of most of these same media critics it seems to be the assumption on the part of the Democrats. And from my perspective, it's actually very much in the interest of the people who made these changes happen for it not to lead to a form of chaos that is viewed as damaging Republican hopes for the next election or leading to some kind of, you know, upside down, insane situation where they are doing damage to the ability of the GOP conference to hold together. Well, I certainly understand that concern, and you know me to be candid. Yeah, there's there's a chance that there will be other instances like what we saw last week just to elect the speaker. So I'm not being flippant or dismissive toward the concern when I say it's worth it. 
And the reason it's worked mm-hmm. it is that I would say, as a self-governing guy myself, that the House has been in chaos for years. It's been over a decade since it passed a budget. It's been years, really, since there's been a real debate on the House floor. Even if we were to have the... Can I just, can I just interject sure. for a second? You're saying something really important there, because I think you're, what you're saying is completely true, but the way the media frames it is business as usual because you have they have this whole assumption that the top down approach of here's a massive 4000 page bill on your desk that you need to vote on within the next 12 hours uh they they're totally fine with that and they depict that as normalcy and not chaos when in reality it is chaos yeah hence the the little bit of charity i was trying to extend to our friends in the media about the, the fact that they may just not be aware of that you know they may not be able to remember those times when it is it was good and it is good for free people to have those debates even if your side comes on the losing end there's something transparent about this just to to give an example regardless of what you or your audience might think about Ukraine military aid. Obviously, there's there's room for people, good people to disagree on that. One of our problems at Heritage was the process. The fact that there's this huge monstrosity of a bill with the people's money being spent. And we're not even having a conversation about strategy. Had that happened, as an example, Ben, Heritage may have come out on the other side. So it's really important mm-hmm. to these processes and procedures. And I think maybe in time over the next few weeks, especially if some bills get advanced and once we see committee chairman in place, that some of the media commentary or some of our media commentators will realize, oh, this isn't chaos. Democracy can be a little messy and it needs to be messy within the guardrails of proper order, which is what we've re- reestablished. And I'll just say on the uh, Ukraine point, I think that what you'll, you would find, and this has been borne out in some polls, is that I, like so many other people who are on the right, am in favor of Ukraine military aid emphasis on military, meaning that it's it's the other parts of the aid that we're uncomfortable with. Why are we paying the salaries of a bunch of government officials? You know, why are we doing all of this other spending in other areas before we even know what a rebuilding process even looks like? You know, the the more that it's just, you know, you need to buy this number of missiles or bullets or drones or what have you, the more comfortable I am with it, as opposed to, you know, sort of a vacuum of 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 silence around all of this other aid that has nothing to do with fighting a war, well, I, which uh, you know, I think is a huge part of this. I agree entirely. Just a, a real brief add on to that, because I agree with what you said 100 percent. It's the lack of process in the House that has caused, in part, the dissension on the political right. There's a lot more agreement on the right when it comes to Ukraine than commentators let on. Therefore, this is the precise reason, among others, that I'm actually cautiously optimistic about it not being chaos as much as a return to proper order. And maybe, I mean, imagine this, Ben, you're such a student and practitioner of great rhetoric. Maybe we'll even see some great speeches by both sides. Wouldn't that be great for American civic life? (laughs) Well, this is the thing that's so funny. You know, we have fractious, you know, parliamentary procedures all around the world all the time. You know, you can go on YouTube and you can find videos of, of you know, people getting into fist fights and things like that on various, you know, like, like it's, it's not, it's not a new thing or an originally American thing, but people are so used to empty chambers with no one listening, top down bills that are, you know, filled out behind the scenes and written by lobbyists and everybody's just told to vote. Uh, you know, in one direction, because if you don't, the government's going to shut down, that we've gotten used to it. It's a new form of normalcy. And because nobody has a memory of a time before this, 
everybody is now defending it as as the status quo. But we run into the real problem, which is this summer we're going to have a you know we're going to probably have a, a, a debt fight. We're going to have a spending fight, and that's probably the first moment that a lot of people on you know staffers on Capitol Hill have expressed to me that you know they put the over under line for Kevin's uh, speakership at eight months for a reason, you know, and. I'm curious from your perspective, do you think that if that fight happens that way, don't you think doesn't that reflect badly on the people who kind of cut this deal? If that if that turns into a chaotic moment where there's a motion to vacate, where you have a new speaker fight over something like that, if you want these rules changes to be permanent, shouldn't that be a situation where you want to be able to navigate your way through it without having to get to that point? The short answer is yes. And and so that comes with the condition that if Speaker McCarthy, and I'm very happy to give him the benefit of the doubt, he and I both know I'm more conservative. Heritage is more conservative than, than he is, but I respect him. So let's give him the benefit of the doubt. If he adheres to what he has agreed to, and then some portion of, of the 20 or maybe some other members decide to use the motion to vacate. I do think that would be in bad faith. I think we've got an opportunity coming from, from policy world to, to be, begin messaging on the debt fight, mm. to begin messaging on spending. We also have, for those of us on the political right, a real issue with the farm bill. Uh, most people living in cities don't recognize how important that is to a large part of of Congress, especially Republicans. That's an issue for us. That, that means that they need to be busy. They need to work as hard this week and next week, Ben, as they did last week in, in whipping votes on, on the muscle memory that they have to have. I, I don't envy Kevin McCarthy with that slim majority, but and perhaps it's a little bit of my faith coming out here. I just believe there's a little bit of providence here. I think I think the higher power is showing us that perhaps there's a path forward with a little more, ironically, after last week, a little more civility in our conversations, but it is going to require something that you and I both know has been lacking for years in this town and it's, and it's political courage. And so yeah. Heritage wants to be there in the friendliest possible way, publicly and privately. But if it, if it goes awry, then uh, we'll be the umpire and we'll call a strike. Just, just as a political junkie, uh, uh Congressman Roy has has uh, said that he would be fine with keeping the C-SPAN cameras the way they were working in the last week under a no rule scenario. Uh, do you think that would be good? Dude, I think it's awesome. It's just so fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I don't see the problem with it. Like, I mean, it's it's I'm sure it would lead to some faux pas and some embarrassments for various people. Uh, but I mean, it's it made Congress. It showed you all the things you're missing. Uh, and, you know, as much as like, I mean, I know you love sports. I love sports. I love the NFL. Getting, you know, a big part of that is being able to access so many aspects of what's going on, to see the things that are happening on the sidelines, to see, you know, players getting the yelling matches and throwing things and stuff like that. It's good. It's healthy. You know, it's, it actually gives you a good perspective on what's really going it, on. It is good because I think one of the many reasons that normal Americans have a distaste for politics is that they know so much of it is a sham. And so, you know, the, mm -hmm. the button down, dark suit, white shirt, red tie, you know, here I am, you know, pretty much fulfilling that description. Mm -hmm. uh, but but, you know, but the <laughs> point is life just isn't that sanitized. And I think the more to the extent that that our representatives can appear to be more human, the, the more authentic, the more people will want to participate in the process. And I happen to think that's good. What's the most important thing 
that you want to get out of this Congress when it comes to oversight? Boy, there are a lot of issues rattling around in my head, but I'll limit yeah. myself to one. Uh, I'm tempted to say the border, but China. Uh, I, I, I think the mm-hmm. Chinese Communist Party, as you and I have discussed before, is not only an existential threat, I think the United States has never faced anything like it in terms of scale and scope. By the way, I do think that we are very capable of confronting it and defeating it, but it's going to require this Congress, not just the Republicans, but but Democrats in the House and the Senate, in spite of being in Democrat control, and I'm going to give benefit of the doubt to the president. Some of his inclinations on this are not bad. It's a real yeah. opportunity for us to confront it. And oversight's going to reveal that. It's going to reveal one thing in particular, and that's all the financial conflicts that members of both parties have and lobbying firms have. I'm not issuing a gratuitous critique here. It's real. Our friend yeah. Peter Schweitzer has shown this many times, among others, and Heritage is going to spend a lot of political capital ensuring that that story is told. I completely agree with you, and I think that it's the most – it is – you know, people exaggerate existential threats, yeah. but this is an existential threat. And uh, and I think that the Congress you know, was slow to realize what a lot of Americans started to realize just in terms of the – creeping feeling of invasion that we've been uh, feeling uh, both culturally, economically, uh, you know, and uh, really across the country, but particularly in the American heartland. Um, One other, you know, I know that you have a lot of other oversight things rattling around in your head. One aspect that I think will be particularly interesting is the reaction to the church style committee that you mentioned. Um, And already the New York Times is out with a report that's sort of, you know, casting doubt on the whole thing and saying it's going to be a partisan charade. It's going to be uh, Benghazi, Benghazi all over again or something like that. I still think the Benghazi committee was actually something that was important. I agree. You know, that's (laughs) so. um, But but when they are going after this so early, to me, it it reflects a feeling, uh, a real feeling among the FBI and, and the DOJ. Uh, that there might be something that could be very potentially bad for them in this. What do you think that committee should focus on? And how should it go about trying to elevate this conversation, given that, you know, part of the risk here is that you end up sounding like or looking like, you know, uh, Charlie from Always Sunny in Philadelphia with the meme, you know, and and the and the board, you know, connecting the strings and all that kind of thing. Um, And there's, you know, because because there's so many different players, they're not familiar people, they're not publicly known. Uh, and yet, you know, when, as you know, Chip raised uh, this weekend, you know, he raises the, the issue of the fact that, you know, look, we had people at school boards being, you know, framed as domestic terrorists. That's a problem. We need to deal with that. How do they go about sending and communicating that message to the American people in a way that is coherent and that the average person can understand as opposed to someone who's just heavily online, you know, has their own equivalent of that Pepe Silvia board and can know all the different players. Yeah. I, I I intuit from how you framed it, that you and I have the same concerns, which is that if it's all about, if it's oversight about our investigations into the weaponization of government all the time, there's a real concern. So two or three quick, but important points, Ben, the first is, it, it has to be tied to a larger aspirational vision for the future. And so it, it can't just be about that. Although, trust me, we know from research that we have from, from folks who know, and uh, they will become 
uh, better known in the coming months, shall I say, that it's real and it affects every American, but it's gotta be tied to why we want to do this. And the answer to that is every individual's freedom, a liberal's freedom, a conservative's freedom and independence. The second is, and no disrespect to the former president whom I admire and am very grateful to for his presidency, but the less it can be tied explicitly to Donald Trump, the better. And and by that, I don't mm-hmm. mean that I think everything that he's gone through has been justified. It hasn't. You just have to explain that the reason we're concerned about what happened at Mar-a-Lago as an example, just one example, is because that kind of thing is happening to Americans, especially pro-life leader friends, you know, who, who've gone yes. through this, who literally live under the fear of their homes being raided. And so you have to explain that it's it's not partisan. It's bigger than one particular candidate. While I think the Biden family has some things to answer for it, also just from a strategic standpoint, can't only be about Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. And then the third thing is it has to have the right messengers. And I think Jim Jordan is eminently capable of that. For that matter, I think Speaker McCarthy is. But we need to get some people who've not members of Congress who've not been in the media limelight, maybe some new members, fresh faces, maybe diverse, however you want to uh, define that word, because that will underscore the point that this is about every American. I think if those three things happen, then Heritage is going to be very confident that what comes out of that is important for restoring self-governance. You talk about targeting normal citizens. Obviously, we've learned things in terms of the experience that uh, people went through at Twitter uh, over the past uh, couple of weeks that for me, and I'm sure for you, are very disturbing. Um, there's a great piece in the Wall Street Journal, which, which I've blasted out to everybody and and hope everybody reads um, from Dr. Carity and from uh, his legal representative at the NCLA uh, that goes through what happened in terms of the White House and their uh, staffers deliberately uh, trying to get Twitter to de-emphasize and take down various accounts to get Facebook to de-emphasize uh, and you know prevent the sharing of various material, including material from uh, the Fox Network and others. Uh, and you know, from my perspective, I just I find this to be absolutely obscene. I can't imagine the explanation for this that doesn't involve a violation of First Amendment rights. You can't have the White House coming in and saying, ban this person. I don't like what they're saying, even if they were sharing information that was medically false or something like that. We still have a First Amendment in this country. And of course, most of the information that was involved wasn't even something that was about vaccination or any of the other you know touchy subjects. It was more about lockdowns and about government policies where they were pushing back against what the Biden White House wanted to have happen. I think, though, that there are a lot of American citizens who feel like, you know, what can I do about this? And I see this, you know, this is tweeted at me virtually every time that I share some form of information about this kind of thing. They say, what can we do? They're just going to keep doing it. How can we change that? How can we have uh, an approach that says these tech companies where we have so much of our public conversation now you know, can't be companies that are beholden to White House staffers who say, I don't like Paul Sperry's account. You got to get rid of it. Well, it, it's an abomination. And and like you, I tried to look at all of the evidence from the other through the lens of the other side. I and mean, this is this is what we do as, as in your case, media mm-hmm. folks, policy people in my case. And there's just no reading of that evidence that suggests that it's innocent. And so to the heart of your question, 
the House, and this is going to be hard with a slim majority because not all Republicans there agree, the House and the conservative movement writ large have to come to grips with a reality. And I'm speaking as a non-lawyer, which probably means this is a pretty good statement. And that is <laughs> social media companies are, in essence, in the 21st century, public utilities. And as a conservative, not a libertarian, I think it's perfectly fine that, and, and, and in fact, good, since that Robert George and Ryan Anderson would use that term, good for government to step in, not only to correct the wrong of free speech, but I know this won't surprise you either, but a related issue is, is what TikTok and Instagram in particular are doing for young people, especially to young women. That's a big concern of mine. I think it's time for this country to realize we don't want to run them out of business. There's just a certain expectation of fairness when it comes to free speech and the common good that they have been violating. And, and I would argue not only Twitter, but Google in particular, if you think about the control that they have over our lives, one need not be a statist nor a conspiracy theorist to realize the time for action has come. And I actually think, kind of coming full circle in our conversation here, Ben, that Kevin McCarthy might solidify his tenure as Speaker if the action that the House takes on that is substantive and well-messaged. He's actually really good at messaging on that point. Time will tell about whether the substance meets it. All right, let's uh, close out with this. You know, I know that Heritage has obviously you know, gone through a lot of different evolution as uh, an entity that's been around. <laughs> yes, uh, as an entity that's been in D.C. for a long time. There are some people who basically say that, you know, the big think tank model uh, is old hat, that, you know, the, the way of doing things now is to be uh, small and focused on one point or one policy issue or something along those lines. And it seems to me that at least some of what you've been doing in the in the early stages of your career at, at the head of, of, of Heritage is to restore the idea of what can a big think tank do to, to affect a broad range of policy issues in a positive direction with a coherent ideology at a point where we have a lot of incoherence and a lot of people who, frankly, have given up on ideology to just sort of respond to things as they pop up on the day to day. So what is your belief about what the big think tank model can do uh, for a new majority in the House with a lot of new people, um, you know, who have not served before and who are coming to this fresh what can you do to inform their opinions on a broad range of issues and, and really affect the direction of policy in Washington? Well, I love that question because 13 months into my tenure as president of Heritage, that's precisely what I've been working on. Not, not just the adaptations we need to make internally, but how are doing so because we are have been around for so long. We are so large, and I don't mean this in an, in an arrogant way. We are influential still. Affects the model of other think tanks. I think first well, support, you don't you don't you don't need to say you are influential still. You are Ford. Okay, you're Coca Cola. <laughs> All right, you are you are the you are the big you are the big kid we, on the block. We, so, we, we try to yeah. be our brother's keeper internally about being humble, <laughs> but, uh, genuinely. But thank you for that. The, the, so we don't take that for granted. And so it actually leads to the first point, and that is. Any big think tank, whether in D.C. or a state capital, needs to stop being condescending toward the everyday American. That's been my biggest surprise my first year in D.C. And I'm not going to name names because it's not my deal. And, and I think everyone, most everyone's doing a good job, but it, it's a real problem. The second is, as it relates to this new majority, we can we can be coaches. In fact, in the last several days, I kind of have been a coach for some of the newer members and some of the even more established members of Congress. 
about where the movement is going. And some of them, you know, will respond to me in a little bit of frustration that surely, Kevin, that can't be the case. And the value of heritage in particular is to be able to show them, yes, this is what conservatives would have argued in the past. But on this issue, say big tech or for that matter, Ukraine military aid, I'm just letting you know, given the huge base of support that we have by everyday Americans, this is what's on the minds of everyday Americans. And so it leads me to this this final point to your question. It is at Heritage, we try to develop a hybrid model of using the expertise of our scholars who really are smart and well-intentioned with what we're hearing from the grassroots. And when we get those matched up, where we're talking about policy that reflects the desires of the everyday American, I think that's a great service to Congress. And, and that's why I think in a lot of ways, that's the challenge that Kevin McCarthy has, right? He's got to figure out how to do that, because I can tell you from spending so much time with everyday Americans, as little time in D.C. as I can, that they're very concerned about the inability of Washington to, to confront the problems they face every day. Kevin Roberts, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. So I just wanted to give you a little bit more perspective uh, from, you know, the the hill rat kind of history that I have about what went on in terms of that speaker fight. It was very fascinating for a lot of different reasons. I'm sure you've seen, you know, all the different pictures that were taken. Had a great conversation the other day with Marjorie Taylor Greene about it. She's very happy about the fact that she's finally going to be able to get a security detail because Nancy Pelosi never gave her one. Uh, and uh, I also spoke with uh, Congressman Chip Roy. I spoke with Kevin McCarthy uh, and I spoke with a number of other people uh, who were key figures in that fight over the past couple of days to get their takes on things. And, and here's what I think is most interesting about this. At the end of the day, as I implied my interview with Kevin Roberts, I think that everyone has to be invested in the success of Kevin McCarthy in a way that I think they have not been before with other speakers, meaning that John Boehner didn't have the investment of the House Freedom Caucus in his success. Paul Ryan didn't have the investment of a lot of moderates in his, in his success when it came to uh, the conservative fiscal policy and tax policy that he wanted to advance. And so you ended up in a situation where there were significant factions of the party that were not really interested in you being successful. But now I think that basically McCarthy has to feel like, with the exception of six members of his own conference, there really is overall massive investment in his success. Donald Trump has invested in his success. He endorsed him, refused to budge off of him, didn't endorse anybody else, which could have sent things in a new direction. McCarthy and his 200 supporters are obviously automatically invested in his success. And then for the number of people, the 14 or so folks who came over with the Chip Roy deal, they also need to be invested in his success because if things go badly for him, if things go sideways in July and August, when you have fights over the debt limit, over a CR, over what have you, then the lesson taken away for most Republicans in Washington will be, we tried your new rules approach. We tried your, you know, opening up the body approach. And the ultimate outcome of that was chaos and something that led us to defeat in 2024. And that's one of the big reasons I think that this speakership actually could last, as Kevin McCarthy has promised, the full two years, despite the skepticism among a lot of people in Washington, 
because so many different people are invested in his success. I mean, just think about the range of ideology here. You have Brian Fitzpatrick, who's basically a Democrat. You have Dan Crenshaw. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene. You have uh, now, you know, again, Chip Roy is invested in your success. You have, you know, Patrick McHenry. You have, you know, the the whole group of folks who are in the Main Street Coalition. You have so many different people who are invested in your success that you shouldn't see the kind of backstabbing that happened under previous speakerships, particularly, I think, the Boehner one. Now, whether that actually happens and people recognize that they have uh, been incentivized to engage and to work together and to make sure that things don't blow up in their face, that remains to be seen because the one rule, as I always say, is that you know Congress is high school. It is very high school. It is very personal. There are a lot of mean girls, uh, uh, both male and female. There are a lot of people who won't sit together at lunch. There are a lot of people who, you know, resent things based on very small grievances uh, and hang on to them for a very long time. But I do think that this house has the potential to be very interesting for a lot of different reasons, uh, very different from previous uh, Republican conferences, uh, congresses, and also uh, very much a creature of uh, the kind of organic work of legislating as opposed to the top-down model, the Nancy Pelosi model, that all the journalists love and all the Democrats love uh, and all the media love, uh, but is not actually a reflection of the way that the House of Representatives ought to work. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of the Ben Dominich podcast. We will be back with more soon to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. everybody, it's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.